if you start thinking of time traveling, you get immediately into this paradox, the grandfather paradox of going back and killing your grandfather, and then you can't be born. As we come to the end of a year most of us would be keen to forget, I thought it was time to have a look at time. Today on the show, I've got physicist Julian Barber, who has a new theory about the Big Bang and time, which he elucidates in his latest book, The Janus Point, A New Theory of Time. This one gets a little more complex than a typical episode of On the Edge with Andrew Gold, so I'm going to break down a few things I think that I've learned. Firstly, Julian posits that the old Newtonian view of time is not entirely right because it puts us inside a box. Thinking outside that box, Julian believes time is not necessarily a thing on a space-time map like some of us thought. The only thing that time is, is a series of changing shapes of the universe. To differentiate between the past and the future, it's just a case of seeing things like atoms and particles becoming less simple and more structured until complex things like us are able to exist. One of the most amazing parts of Julian's theory, however, is that time goes back to the Big Bang and then goes the other way. So before the Big Bang is just another timeline going in the other direction. Bit weird, right? I always edit down the interviews a fair bit to make them quick and accessible, so I've lost some of Julian's most intriguing yet complex material. So if you are interested in more, make sure to get hold of The Janus Point, A New Theory of Time on Amazon, link in the show notes. There, you'll get to the real thermodynamics and theories and historical stuff. Many of you are going to be fascinated, and I'm proud to have such a remarkable mind on the show. Others of you might find it difficult at times, but I would suggest you stick with it, because we do go into other fun things like aliens, what happens at the end of time, whether it'd be good to live forever, and whether we have free will, or are things all decided for us. Hope you enjoy. I'll be back at the end. You studied in Cologne, didn't you? I did, yes. And you worked in translation as well? I did a PhD in in Cologne, and then um, almost immediately afterwards, I decided to go independent because I wanted to study the nature of time and the relativity of motion and try and find an mm. alternative to Einstein's theory of general relativity. I wouldn't flourish in standard academia with only producing perhaps initially a research paper once every five or six years because <laughs> already there was the expression publish or perish back then in, in the late 19, 1960s so what do you think is more difficult einstein's theory of relativity or learning german oh <laughs> they, well they're very different i mean i had a reasonably good mathematics education at cambridge and I read Schrödinger's, there's a lovely little book by Schrödinger called Space-Time Structure. And I read that over a weekend and thought I understood the, the really essential bits of relativity just like that. Uh, whereas learning German is, 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 is a long haul. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not as long a haul as, as Russian. That's Oof. even more. Uh, because Do you speak Russian as well? I used to be quite fluent in Russian because I earned my living by translating Russian scientific journals into English for <laughs> 20, 28 years. And in fact, I estimated that I've generated about 70 million words, which are now sitting on library shelves. 
And then the following amusing idea is if you ranked all of humanity in the number of words they generated, each human being, where would I come? I think there's quite a good chance I'm in the top 20 and can see <laughs> even higher because translating scientific Russian, I used to dictate it and I had two ladies who typed and it's wow. very easy to do. It's a very simple language, scientific Russian. And if you know the subject, I used to just sit there and dictate sometimes. I think the greatest I did was 30,000 words in a day. Wow. While the people who work as professional translators in the European Union, they're, they're expected to do about 1,500 if that a day, because it's so legal and technical and, and very important to get it exactly right. Um, so <laughs> I don't know, it, it may be an unlikely achievement of mine. It's something though. I mean, I read uh, Harry Potter in German. That's the best I can do in a foreign language. Yeah. No, I've, I've read quite a bit of of German. And I mean, I'm, in, I'm fluent in German because my wife was German and I lived there for six and a half years. And also what, what really taught me to speak German was I, for, for about eight or nine years, for a month in the summer, I was working in a holiday camp for children who were, they were the children of refugees who'd come from Eastern Europe at the end of the Second World War or during it. Um, and they spoke German. So to communicate with them, you just had to, to, to learn to speak German. So that, that's by far the best way to learn to speak German. Wow. Yeah. Zinken oder schwimmen. Yeah, that's it. Yes. Yeah. Sink or swim. <laughs> yeah. So has scientific thought uh, in, that, in the last two decades changed dramatically or, or not? Mine or, 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 or scientific generally? I suppose both, but I, I guess the sort of scientific consensus. As regards cosmology and Einstein's theory of relativity, not much has changed, except there's been this huge advance with the detection of gravitational waves. This has really transformed the field. People could really start doing genuine calculations of non-trivial situations in general relativity. They could before the observations were made, they could predict what the emission of gravitational waves would look like when they were detected. This famous chirp as, as the sound, as the frequency goes up oh. as they merge. Right. So that was clarified early in this century. Um, and then ever more sophisticated things. And then, what is it now already about four or five years ago, the actual first detections were made. And that has completely transformed. Now, I would say for about 15 years, a lot of relativity cosmology research was rather barren. There wasn't all that much happening. But now these, this, you know, tremendous wealth of observations and calculations can be made. So it, it's mm. a much more stimulating field now. Wow. But on term, on, in terms of the things that I'm really interested in, uh, a quantum theory of gravity and the nature of time, I would say nothing as much has changed. I, being optimistic, I would say we're generating the change, my collaborators and I. We're certainly bringing forward new ideas, whether they're right at any time will tell. But um, How does one come up with new ideas? Are you sitting around? Are you researching, reading and reading and reading and thinking? Because I don't have that kind of brain. So I'm trying to imagine what it is to have a, 
a brain that is going, okay, now the Janus point is a new theory that I'm going to have. How does that get into your mind? By thinking about these things for a very long time, I've been thinking about these things. I don't read all that much, but what I do read is, is top quality. In fact, I would say some of the people who've been influenced me most are the great classics. I mean, starting with Ptolemy, in fact, whose Almagest is, parts of Ptolemy's Almagest, I would say, have been influential. Uh, Copernicus, Kepler, his Astronomia Nova, his account of how he discovered the laws of planetary motion, that is, that is a hugely underrated book. It's, it's a colossal piece of work reading Einstein, the most important papers of Einstein, the papers that Schrodinger, in which he discovered wave mechanics. I don't tend to follow current literature much because frankly, most of it, to be a bit honest, may not be worth reading. <laughs> so tell me in the simplest terms, and your, your book is, is wonderful for its accessibility. I can see that that's a big, uh, it, it seems that you want everybody to be able to understand it rather than just scientists. Um, yeah. So in the simplest terms, what is, what is, I know this is a difficult thing to explain in simple terms, but we've got to imagine it's for my dad who doesn't, he listens to the podcast and he doesn't understand. What is, what is the Janus point? I'd always been interested in the problem of the arrow of time. The problem of the arrow of time is that the known laws of nature don't distinguish a direction of time. They work equally well in both directions. You can run it the other way and pretend time is going the other way. And qualitatively, it looks exactly the same. The, the great mystery that came to light with the discovery of the laws of thermodynamics in 1850 was the fact that all the processes in, in nature all go in one direction. There's a colossal effect of unidirectionality in nature. We all get older in the same direction. We never meet anyone getting younger. All the stars, trillions upon trillions of them scattered throughout the universe, they're all manifestly getting older in the same direction as us. How does that come about that the whole universe is so colossally asymmetric in time when the laws are symmetric? And this is where the idea of the Janus point comes from. If you imagine that Roman god Janus standing at that minimal point, he looks out in one direction and he sees what starts off as a very uniform distribution of particles getting more clustered. And if he turns around and looks in the opposite direction, exactly the same thing is happening. So now we say, don't imagine that there's some invisible Newtonian time, absolute time flowing from past eternity to future eternity, but say actually the direction of time is defined by that increased clustering in both sides. So that there are two arrows of time or bi-directional arrows that start at that one point and go out in opposite directions. So if you imagine then that there are intelligent beings in that universe, they've got to be on one side of the Janus point or the other. Does that mean that there's on the other side of the Big Bang? So there's a Big Bang in the middle, it's come to us on one side and on the other side is there another us having this very conversation well first of all let me say that there are two two theories i've put forward in the book one of them is this one and crucial in that is that the size of the universe doesn't go to 
to zero, it remains finite at the thing there. In that case, it wouldn't be exactly the same on the other side, but it would be qualitatively the same. There might well be intelligent people on that side, um, intelligences. They wouldn't look like you and me, but they could well be there. And would time appear to be going forward for them? No, as then well? time would, be, uh, would appear to be going forward. Now, now, an image which I'm... which people are finding helpful. I'm, I'm saying for these people, it could be like two people walking down opposite sides of Mount Fuji. So they start up at the top of Mount Fuji. And if you look at these beautiful pictures, you can see it's covered with snow at the top. And there's not much variety up there. It's a fairly uniform snow field. But as you come down the terrain and the vegetation gets richer and richer, which is more or less exactly what's been happening in the universe since the Big Bang. So these two people walking down opposite sides of Mount Fuji could keep a record of, of how the things change as they go down. And then they get on their mobile phones and say, hey, this is what I saw. And they say, well, it was almost exactly the same as I saw. And if you look at the pictures of Mount Fuji, you'll see that's what they right. would say. Yeah. Uh, but of course, if this picture is right, there's no way of talking to people on the other side of, of the Janus point. There, 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 there's no communication with them. So that's that's the situation on in that model there. Um, right. And does that mean then that there's no such necessary, there's no such force or such uh, material thing as time, uh, and instead there is just everything going from sort of harmony. To, to chaos, and that's what we perceive to be time. I would say that the, the main thing is time is not like some pre-existing timeline, which has got, as it were, inches marked out on it. And then you, you put in an instant of time. I would say that time, an instant of time, is just a, a possible shape of the universe. If it's three particles, it could just be the shape of the universe. Now, it shouldn't include the size as well, because the universe, by definition, is everything. So you could only talk about a size of the universe if there's a measuring rod outside. I could, I could pick up my mobile phone and, and, and put it against my hand and say, oh, yeah, it's, it's the same size. But that, that's part of the universe. It's, it's not some absolute scale outside the universe. So if you're talking about the universe, you can really only talk about its shape. I would say you have to think of the history of the universe as a succession of shapes, and it's just one shape after another. And you already get a non-trivial model just with those three particles that Lagrange was studying, because they're more or less near the, 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 the Janus point, they will typically be sort of like equilateral triangles. But then as you go out on the two sides, you get this clustering effect that two particles get together close, relatively close to each other compared to the third. And those yeah. two particles go round each other in Keplerian orbits. They're circling their common center of mass in elliptical orbits. And that third particle I call it the singleton, is going off in the opposite direction. That's really very interesting. And that Kepler pair becomes rather miraculously a rod, clock, and a compass all in one. Because each time it goes around, that's the tick of the clock. Its major axis, the length of the ellipse, is a ruler. Right. 
and it it's a fixed direction to the uh, it tends to fix direction to that escaping particle so that kepler pair confirms that the other particle is going off satisfying newton's first law of motion right. and all of that comes out of newton's laws it's all sitting there hmm. and tell me what is what is quantum mechanics <laughs> for the layman it, that, that i mean quantum mechanics is a huge thing i mean the the, the simplest way is when you get down to, to say the effect of it is when you get down to very light particles like the electron, uh, you can't simultaneously say where it is and, and the direction in, and its momentum where it's going. You can't measure them both simultaneously. But that's only just the merest scratching of the surface of... Right. Of the system, but mm. I would say for me it's very holistic quantum mechanics, particularly in in the form that Schrödinger discovered, wave mechanics. It's really imagining if you just had the three particles, and, and Schrödinger developed it with with where they have size as well as shape. If you had just three particles, Schrödinger's theory says. It, is, it accords probabilities to those triangles with size and just says there's a certain probability for this one and a certain pro for this particular triangle, another probability for that. So it's giving probabilities to all possible triangles. Mm. And as Schrodinger originally discovered it, those are all changing in time. So it's, it's a very different picture from Newton's, but underlying mathematics actually is common to the two theories they just do very different things with them we we always hear about um schrodinger's cat of course um and the idea being that if you can't observe the cat if it's inside a box that he's neither dead nor alive because we can't observe it now to again to a layman like myself that makes no sense because i just imagine the cat's either alive or it's not it doesn't matter if we observe it so why does it why does it matter? That's just the very mysterious, that's just in the structure of quantum mechanics. Mm. And both Schrodinger and um, Einstein didn't like it at all. There's a famous story, a year or so after Schrodinger had created his wave mechanics, he, he went to Copenhagen to talk to Niels Bohr. And Niels Bohr was sort of pestering him with the interpretation of quantum mechanics and all sorts of things. And, yeah. and Schrodinger said, I, I wish I hadn't invented this now. <laughs> uh, more or less to that effect. The poor chap was, was ill in bed, but still Niels Bohr would leave him in that piece. Um, Do you think that it's a case then? There's, it's possible that maybe, maybe sort of the mysteries of the universe are too complex potentially for human brains uh, at some level or will, will we get to a point where it's like we we just can't get that or do you think we can eventually understand everything well i'm nothing if not optimistic i i think the picture that my collaborators and i have been developing actually does give a a, a, a possible a relatively easy way to understand what's going on hmm. that that's that's a bit rash to make that claim but very important and this is the idea of thinking about the entire universe and hmm. 
getting rid of, as I say, of the barnacles which Newton brought in when he introduced the idea of absolute space and time. I mean, essentially, he he put the universe into a box with a clock ticking along as well. Uh, and that box and the clock and also the ruler, all of those things there um, were hiding the beautiful motions that his theory was actually describing. I mean, this, all of this picture that I've described about the Janus point and that Kepler pair becoming a rod and a clock, that's completely hidden in the normal way uh, people think about Newton's theory, the sort of problems that one solves. Hmm. And it, it's because, I think it, it's because people are not thinking, how could the whole universe behave? What, what, what could the whole universe be doing? And then once you get that into your head, I think that it opens up the possibility of things making much more sense and even looking simpler. I think we like the idea that there's sort of a map with time and space on it because we like the idea that, for example, um, you know, people we've loved and lost and moments in time are sort of still out there somewhere on a sort of map and they're still happening, those moments and, and also the moments to come and that potentially we could do time travel in the future and things like that. Is, is the picture you're describing, does that make that impossible? Not at all. I would say it's the same possibility, but I would say a more satisfying one. In fact, I think it's a much more satisfying one because uh, just think about, except the idea of provisionally of, of Euclidean space, and you can have all possible triangles or all possible triangle shapes existing in that space. And I believe I, I'm a Platonist when it comes to mathematics. Mm. Those triangles can be there forever. I mean, you can always have right angle triangles whose sides are three, four, five, or five, 12, 13, and there's a whole lot more of them. Yeah. And they're all there in eternity. But if you think about us now in the whole universe, we are in a shape of the universe, which the way I think about it is just as eternal as a three, four, five triangle. But doesn't it, it means that we can't potentially sort of go and find or, 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 you know, go back in time or forward in time. Could we do, is that still possible? I, I don't think so. I, I'm, I don't believe in time travel myself. It's, it, it looks in the standard way in which Einstein discovered his theory and it's presented, there are what are called closed time-like loops. Right. But if you start thinking of time traveling, you get immediately into this paradox, the grandfather paradox of going back and killing your grandfather and then you can't be born. Now, uh, David Deutsch, for whom I have very high regard, he, he's a great believer in the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. And he, he, he argues that you can go back to a situation which is very close to what it was in the past, but not identical. So in that one, you can kill your grandfather <laughs> because yeah. the one that, that uh, conceived you is still uh, survives. Um, I don't, I, I don't, I mean, this may be right, but mm. there's an alternative way of arriving at Einstein's theory of general relativity where, where it really is unidirectional. It starts with the Big Bang and, and yeah. both the quantum theory that my collaborators and I are developing 
it just goes on. Uh, I think my own personal philosophy is carpe diem, make the most of every instant in which you are. And that just because an instant is given and is unchanging, the eternal is, is fleeting simultaneously. I think it was uh, it was Professor Brian Cox who was the one who who gave me this idea of like of, of a map, and he, he sort of laid out a list. He had photos of like his wedding and different moments in in his life. Yes, but does he want to stick them onto a a blackboard or or, or, or you know you mount these things on on? I mean I, I mean like I've mounted my grandchildren behind me here. Yeah. Um, where does he does he want to have them definitely stuck somewhere in some chronological order? Because the thing about the successive shapes of the universe that I would say, because they've got structure, you could have sort of big records of the, you could have pictures of each structure uh, and you could throw them down in a heap, and muddle them all up, shuffle them all together. But because each is distinct, you could then, uh, sort them out again. You could unshuffle them and, and, and put them in the order you want. So as long as they're in the heap, as long as the, 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 the things are intact, their integrity is not destroyed. They're, they're all there. And in fact, I would say that's a, that's a better way of thinking about it. So I have no desire to, 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 I mean, they talk about the Newtonian space, they say, is a container. And time is a timeline on which you in which you fit things. I think this is completely redundant and, and actually is really hindering the way the universe really works. The universe, I believe, is just about differences of shapes. It's not about where the shapes are in some imagined space. Would you say that to Professor Brian Cox's face? His what? Would you say it to his face? <laughs> that you disagree? Oh, absolutely. You're honest. Yes. I mean, I know my publicist in this country is hoping to get me on the infinite monkey cage so. oh really <laughs> well i don't know whether they will but if, if they do i shall i can argue with him along those lines <laughs> i can and i will <laughs> do you listen to that show on and off they had one with brian green i think it was because his book until the end of time had just come out i haven't mm. listened to it much but um maybe yeah. i'll taking part in it who knows for this show i get um i've got a system where people can sign up and be members uh it's called patreon and if they sign up and do that then then they can ask one question or one person can ask a question so do you mind me reading out a question from a, a listener not at all no go ahead yes. so he's uh alistair watson and he said hi dr barber I'm really interested in what we can learn from physics about free will and determinism. If we had the technology, which we are unlikely to ever have, to know exactly where every atom in the universe was and how it behaved, and given we and our brains are part of that universe, then would we be able to predict people's choices? Is this impacted by randomness introduced at the quantum level? And would you agree with me that we do not have any free will despite this randomness? Oh, that's, that's about four or five questions in one. <laughs> I'll do my best. As of now, I don't believe in free will, but I keep an open mind about it. For me, it was all summed up long ago by Ernst Mach, um, who said free will is an illusion because of the fact that very often we want to do something and then we succeed in doing it. 
That that is definitely a fact. I mean, you wanted to talk to me, I wanted to talk to you, and here we are. We're doing it. Yeah. Uh, and Mark thinks that that is what's what what's going on. Now, the, there's no doubt that to quite an extent we can predict what will happen in the future. In many ways, I think in in, in quite a lot of respects, the future is easier for for to determine what it will be than to establish what the past was. I mean, a lot of things are fixed, you know, and, and people make a, an effort, they put it in a, you know. So I, I think the the future may be far better known than the past, ironically. Hmm. People think the past is fixed. In Newtonian theory, in classical physics, everything is fixed, so to speak, in the past. But you need infinite accuracy or extraordinarily high accuracy to, to, to predict the things. I would say it's, it's open. And of course, everything gets very complicated if you get into the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, when, which I'm inclined, I, I go along with David Deutsch. In fact, it was David Deutsch who, who, who did pretty well persuade me to take many worlds seriously. And I won't say it's definitely right, but I think you certainly can't dismiss it out of hand. Um, I, 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 I describe David Deutsch as a messianic believer in many worlds and myself as an apologetic believer. <laughs> I suppose apologetic because it just sounds a little bit like science fiction. And it's, is that the idea that there's just well many, many worlds, parallel universes? Is that what that is? That's the basic idea hmm. that, that's there. Uh, and in fact, actually, the the current ideas I'm developing with collaborators is, is actually, I think, tending to strengthen that uh, and, and possibly make it more sharp and precise in what sense there are many worlds. Um, the, the image I've got at the moment, I gave you that one of the two people walking down opposite sides of Mount Fuji, mm. but the alternative idea where the universe goes exactly to zero uh, and, and it's quantum mechanical as well, is that you would have people walking simultaneously down all sides of Mount Fuji, down going out in, in all directions. Wow. Uh, and that would be that would be a sort of many worlds interpretation. Infinite different possibilities. So in that case, there would be another me and you talking across the Zoom right now. It could be. It yes, and it, and it would be. It wouldn't be exactly the same. There would be, there would be there, I would say each one is 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 unique. Um, quite what it might be. I mean, if if that picture is right, there's a huge amount of research could be done to 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 develop what the implications all are. But but I mean, mathematics says that you can have things that are very similar. I mean, you could just any real numbers, you take the decimal expansion, you can go for a 500 decimal places and they're exactly the same and then they start differing. Do you, do you give much thought to the why? Like, what, you know, I know that's not a very scientific question, I suppose, but I know you're a big fan of Shakespeare and he, he sort of often posed those kinds of questions as well. Why? How did everything start? Why and how? A person I take pretty seriously is Mac. Tegbark with his ideas of the mathematical universe. I do think, I think mathematics is very, very fascinating. I, I've never really got in much into the philosophy of mathematics, but it's, it's very, very interesting. 
um, how certain things seem to be there with a, with a complete necessity. Pythagoras's theorem or, or, or the, the possibilities there. I mean, that, that, that there are prime numbers. 13 is prime and you know, it'll go on being prime forever. And then there's these very special numbers like, uh, like pi. There may be a necessity of structures the, the, the great mystery, and it, it, it certainly, whether we'll ever fathom it, is, is why there's consciousness. I mean, I, I think I, I have very little difficulty in accepting that there are definite structures. Uh, the, the example I've already given is, is the right angle triangles that, that are expressed in terms of integers, mm. 3, 4, 5, 5, 12, 13. The fact that that's, that that's sort of out there in the realm of pure mathematics is for me very, very impressive. But why on earth should something say significantly more complicated than a 5, 12, 13 triangle be aware of itself? Heavens only knows. <laughs> it's great. It's, it's sort of the universe becoming aware of itself. It's, it's a really strange... Well, I mean, you, you, you read a lot of... I mean, I think, I think it's true to say, I think it's quite plausible that the universe is becoming ever more aware of itself. It's a little bit hard to, there's certainly nothing like you or me near the Big Bang. Mm. That we can be sure of. So if, if consciousness requires structure, for which there's quite a lot of evidence from neuroscience, then, then it is a case, I think, that the universe is becoming more aware of itself as, as it gets more richly structured. Wow. It's fascinating to think about where that could be going as well. And if there's other, I often wonder about if there's other life. Going back to time, other life, I mean, in other galaxies and things, but going back to time, is, would it be right then to sort of say, if somebody said, so what's happening right now in another galaxy that that question in itself doesn't make sense because there is no sort of now that far away from here. Well, th this, is, this is one thing where I, I do tentatively question whether uh, there isn't a, a quite different old, uh, interpretation of general relativity. Uh, Einstein found general relativity in a very particular way uh, a, a key step in that was the great proposal of Minkowski of four-dimensional space-time, mm. where he just made time almost identical to space. It became a fourth dimension. The, the, there is a difference because of the way that light behaves. But... Um, I don't think you see that Mach, there's, there's a completely different way that general relativity could have been discovered. And, and that can go back to what Mach said. Mach said, it is utterly impossible to measure the changes of things by time. Quite the contrary, time is an abstraction at which we arrive from the changes of things. Okay. And I think that's just undeniably true. That's what set me thinking about all of these things nearly 60 years ago, uh, a, a thought like that. When Einstein was asked, what is time? He said, it's what a clock tells you. Hmm. But the more fundamental question is, what is a clock? 
And towards the end of his life, he admitted that when he'd created general relativity, he'd, he'd committed a sin. He said, I've got an idea of space-time with a metric in it. That's a, a measure of distance and time. And then I take in something from outside, which is completely a different, it's not part of the theory, it's alien to the theory. It's an external rod and a clock, which actually measures these distances and things. And he says, that's a sin, and it should be rectified. I suppose what I'm wondering is, if somebody was in another galaxy right now, and you know, we've, we've sort of conquered space or whatever in the distant future, could I be able to say, right, I'm going to call you at 3 p.m. tomorrow? Obviously, tomorrow is not the thing. Or, or our time, but would we be able to work out or have a conversation with one another through some sort of system? Or is the time different so that it wouldn't even work? It would just be, we'd be talking at different speeds. That, that's, I mean, I, I'm not denying the facts of, I mean, that alternative picture that I've given is completely consistent with the standard story. They, mm. they, they, they lead the same. I mean, if you put a, an atomic clock on a, this was already done about 40 years ago, you put an atomic clock on an aeroplane and send it round the world. And it's, it's gone a little bit slow oh, yeah. compared with yeah. one that stayed on the earth. That situation never going to, it's never going to change. Um, at least I would be absolutely staggered if it, if it, if it did. Um, but what might be possible is, you see, in, in the theory that we're developing, the time since the Big Bang is a pure number. It might be possible then to, let's say, people on Mars work out a pure number, say their, their time from the Big Bang, which would yeah. be a pure number. And then we would meet up and, and we'd also calculate it. And then we'd say, well, we've actually worked out exactly the same pure number. What do you think is the end of the universe what happens at the end is there an end if the ideas we're developing are correct it will go on forever and it will go on getting more and more varied it will look very different i don't i would be very i, I find it hard to believe there would be any human beings mm. there. it's pretty doubtful we may not be here in a, not, I mean, who knows how long yeah. human beings will be on the earth I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm clinging to the, the hope, the, the minute hope that I can live forever um, and that there'll be a universe here that will be as old as I am in billions of years. Well, I, I personally have no great desire to live forever. I'll, I'm, I'm now 83. I'll, I'll settle for my early 90s. <laughs> I'm reasonably good health. But a very important thing is one of the things that make people very gloomy about the distant future of the universe is that as the universe expands, the energy density gets lower. That's the way to think about it. And then they think that it's just sort of, it's all got so faint and, and, and there that nothing can be done with it. But this, I think, could be profoundly mistaken because what really counts in, in nature, and I've mentioned it before, is ratios. So if there are, from our point of view, small ripples, but there are smaller ripples, then the smaller ripples can look at the big ripples and say, oh, there is something interesting after all. So at this stage, I bring in Gulliver's Travels and Alice in Wonderland, which really brings home that ratios of sizes of scales are important. 
Hmm. Uh, so maybe the interesting things, as long as there are ratios which are not all the same, there's variety there. Where there is variety, there is hope for the future of the universe. So you think I could live forever? I think it could live forever and it could go on getting more and more varied. No, I mean, I, I could live forever. I don't think you, I don't want to be despondent, but I, I don't think you'll live forever. But there may be a record of you. I mean, after all, copy well, dear, make the most of it while you're here. <laughs> I've got someone on the show, Andrew Steele, who's written a book. Um, it's a different topic, of course, but ageless. And it's about uh, the, the attempt to cure aging over the coming decades and centuries. So it's sort of given me a bit of probably false hope. Well, I I must say, frankly, I have great reservations about that. Where are we going to fit them all on the earth? I haven't gotten to that uh, that bit yet. I need to... I'm amazed at the number of people who volunteered to go and live on Mars with a one-way ticket. I mean, I nothing would persuade me to go to Mars. When I was younger, I might have been tempted to go to the moon to see what it's like or into orbit, because that must yeah. be a wonderful experience. But I mean, the idea of intelligence spreading out into the universe is, I think, very far away. And is it is it particularly desirable? It's, it sounds like you, d you don't feel there might be intelligence elsewhere in the universe. Oh, I think it's highly likely there's intelligence elsewhere in the universe. It may be much, much rarer. I mean, one thing, it may be that there are very few planets which have a moon which is as relatively large as our moon. It, it may well be that the moon was really critical for the emergence of real intelligence on the Earth. The, the, the professor at the Department of Astrophysics in Oxford, Stephen Balbus, who mm. um, his, uh, he's the, uh, what is his title? Anyway, Christopher Wren had, had that position uh, a few centuries ago. Hmm. Because of talking to his 10-year-old son, who got very interested in uh, continental drift, he's come up with a fascinating theory, uh, which is, the, the, the following fact is this, in the whole of biological history, there's only been one case where quadrupeds have come from the sea and colonized the continents. That was, I think, about 350 million years ago. Uh, but there have been many occasions where uh, quadruped mammals have gone into the sea. I mean, they're all over the place, dolphins, whales, and, and, and so forth. Um, so that's an interesting thing. And talking to his son, Stephen noticed that when the two continents that came together to make Pangaea, there was a sort of a shard between them. And where you have shards, there are always very high tides. Hmm. The highest tides are in the Gulf of, what's it called in Canada, near Nova Scotia. Um, the second highest is the Seven Estuary in, in Britain. Hmm. And his idea that he came upon was when there are very these high tides, they might make quite big ponds or small lakes. And these creatures from the sea could live in them and go backwards and forwards at high tides and slowly get established on land. Huh. 
And the only reason that could happen is because the moon, Newton had already realized that the moon was very interesting because the tides that the moon gives rise to are of the same order of magnitude as, as the sun does. Uh, the moons are bigger, but the suns are the same order of magnitude. And that's what gives rise to these very big tides occasionally, and then the, the, the lesser ones. And that would be a crucial part of his story. So it may be that it's only on planets where there, uh, where there are oceans and the moon, which is of the same order of magnitude as ours, that the creatures that could come from the sea where it's easier for life to start off could then colonize the land and then become sort of intelligent bipeds and, and, and so forth. Absolutely fascinating theory. And actually, it's, it's, an, it's an ongoing research project to do that. I don't suppose it's just possible astronomically, but it's, it's, I think it's pretty unlikely that there are many planets with a moon like that. Hmm. I mean, there's a lot of mystery about the moon, why we, within the solar system, there's no other planet that's got such a big moon relative to its size. I mean, Mars has a couple of mountains going around it. Mercury and Venus have none. Jupiter and Saturn have plenty, but they're tiny compared with the total mass of their planets. So, so it might be that we're just incredibly, incredibly lucky to be around alive and that although there's almost certainly life out there, intelligent life, it, it might be such a great distance that we'll never get close to it. I wouldn't underestimate anything. I mean, the, the, one of the things that really amazes me is, is the increasing sensitivity of, of instruments, how they can pick up such faint signals. I mean, I don't know, it would be, I mean, it, and I'm sure an engineer who, who deals with uh, radio, things like that, could work out how far out from the earth this discussion that you and I have been having could be picked up uh, <laughs> by radio telescopes and then and, and, and played. You know, maybe, maybe a light year away. Hmm. Possibly for I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm just guessing how far away. Yeah. But I mean, they I mean they are communicate. I mean, these two space probes which have now left the solar system. It's it's sort of gone outside. They're still getting radio signals back from it. These are tiny amount of power is is sending those radio signals. And just just think about the images of the planets. The uh, ones that were were found, it's just staggering that go around Jupiter and Saturn. They're beautiful, those those images, weren't they? You think it's it's quite possible that, uh, you know, some point in the near future might discover some sort of intelligent life then? Could happen tomorrow. That would be a great day, wouldn't it? I'm not at all sure. Um, the um, Think what happened to all the unfortunate people in uh, in the Americas when Columbus came. 90% of them died of European illnesses. You'd like to think that anyone, any sort of civilization that was so sophisticated that it went far beyond our own would also have developed maybe a system of morals uh, that, that, that we didn't quite have. Well, let's hope that they are, but unfortunately you don't see much sign of that yet on the earth. And we've certainly developed the capacity to kill an awful lot of each other, and maybe not everybody. But there's a nice... I think it was the same 
somebody, it may have been the same Stephen Barber, said that if you were allowed to kill, this was before he was captured on, in the Obama time, if you, if you were allowed for the sake of humanity to kill 100 people, who would you kill? Well, the first one would be Osama bin Laden, and the next 99 would be the people trying to <laughs> discover alien intelligence. <laughs> Because that's so dangerous for humanity. It would almost be worth it, though. Just at least we see something else. I don't know. Learn something. It's just so boring. The news is the same every day. My whole life is the same news, just in a different way. And this would be like, oh, and there are aliens. That would be a great, I think, a fascinating day. The next day might be bad if we die. I suppose I was just born with a happier temperament that enables me to enjoy my food. <laughs> And my walks and chatting to you, Andrew. I want more. I need more. <laughs> uh, I, no, well, yeah, it's a great thing to be content with what you've got. <laughs> the following day, I'm afraid to say we didn't find alien life. Julian will have been relieved, of course, although I was thoroughly disappointed, as I continue to be every day. What a pleasure it was talking to such an esteemed mind on the show, an all-round lovely guy. I'm going to stick with my theory that time is on a map and that all of your memories of lost loved ones and the most nostalgic moments of your lives are out there somewhere, stuck in space-time forever. In that way, we truly are immortal, even if Julian's theories do seem to put paid to such a romanticized theory. Thank you to my new Patreons this week. There's the woman who I've been emailing with who signed up to the highest membership tier but doesn't wish to be named, but you are very much appreciated. Sarah Hubert, thank you so much as well for your very generous contribution. Remember everyone, if you're really enjoying the show and you must be if you listened this far, head to patreon.com slash andrewgold and sign up to the ads-free show or anything to help support the show next week on the podcast i believe is stephen knight also known as the godless spellchecker he recently became good friends with ricky gervais who loved how stephen called out religious people who would tweet angrily about atheists with the word atheist spelt wrong stephen does a lot more than that of course he's not just a pernickety person who points out spelling mistakes but a, a fervent anti-woke and anti-religion twitter personality Thanks for all your lovely messages this week. Andrea Alga left a review in the USA saying, I love the variety of topics and find all the interviews very interesting. Andrew knows how to find very unique people to interview. Thank you, Andrea. Uh, and Ashley Bell in Canada, who I speak to on Twitter from time to time, wrote, Recommend 100%. I look so forward to each episode that you put out. You always choose such fascinating topics with very interesting guests. I come away learning something new every single time. You have a very inquisitive yet caring way of interviewing people, and that's really special. Keep up the awesome work, and we truly appreciate the work that you put into each show. Much love from Canada. P.S. I'm a follower of Bobby Caldwell's podcast, which is where I learned about yours. Bobby Caldwell being the man in a Michigan State prison who accidentally killed his girlfriend. Had some lovely messages on Instagram from Apurva Jane, Adelaide Thorhalls, Osama from Oman in Scotland, uh, and on Twitter from Telematrus and Argentine Laura R. Thank you all so much for getting in touch, and you can all find me there on andrewgold underscore OK. Sorry I don't have time to read out everything. Have a lovely Christmas, and I'll be back with Stephen Knight next week. <laughs>